And I remember like getting out of the salon, jumping into my boyfriend's car and being like, I'm gonna open a nail salon. I loved the mix of streetwear with high-end designer clothes. So then I'm narrowing, narrowing, narrowing down if you wanted to do sportswear and youth culture, you came to me. I got sports clients like that. My best friend said, look, I'm gonna travel around India for a year. I'm gonna give you my inheritance to start this business. And when I get back, I want a job. In the first part of Beauty Stack, engineers don't wanna work for black women. They don't wanna work for women. I partnered with Dell Technologies and Microsoft as part of their 2022 Small Business Podference. Now, Podference is a UK podcast-based conference, a place to share advice and inspiration to support all small businesses, which I absolutely love. Dell is a trusted advisor for small businesses. They offer dedicated technology and solutions so you can find the right technology and advice to help your business grow and succeed. When I heard about everything they offered, I was blown away. I'm so impressed. And if you have a small or medium business, this can absolutely help you. So today I talked to Sharmadine Reed, and her career has been one that I have watched for years now. And I think it is one of those ones that it's so recognizable as her. It makes so much sense when you meet her and hear her. And I think that she has done what she wants to do and what she needs to do. And she has done it so well. And I think there is so much that we can learn from her in terms of kind of going down the path that she wants to go down and making just something incredible out of it. I feel like there's so much that whether you're in entrepreneurship, whether you are doing whatever job that you can learn from her attitude to her career, how if you looked at it, it's not necessarily been about being linear, it's been about making sense and being about her fulfilling what she wants to be doing, what she thinks she can do really well and also being able to recognise actually, do you know what? No, this is not what I want to spend my career doing, even if it's working really well. Her story is incredible. I think that everyone can learn a lot from it, but it's also just incredibly interesting. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And as always, I hope you have a fantastic week. Sharmadine Reed MBE is a leading entrepreneur and beauty visionary on a mission to digitally connect like-minded females. In 2021, she started her latest venture, The Stack World, an exclusive platform for female leaders, founders, and entrepreneurs to connect and share experiences. A serial entrepreneur of three impressive startups, Sharmadine has a wealth of experience. Before launching The Stack, Sharmadine first took the beauty industry by storm, receiving an MBE for her first business, We Ain't Hoes. Wow. Her salon was the salon and hosted global brands, including Nike, Marc Jacobs and Diesel, among others. Using $5.5 million raised in pre-seed funding, Sharmadine then proceeded to develop her next business, Beauty Stack, a digital platform for beauticians to showcase and book their work. Following this and expanding her lifelong mission for female-driven empowerment, Sharmadine then launched The Stack, becoming one of just 10 black female founders in the UK to secure venture capital funding in this last decade. Let me read that again. Becoming one of just 10 black female founders in the UK to secure venture capital funding in this last decade. Is that not the most outrageous statistic you have ever heard? Sharmadine's story is one of undeniable hard work, drive and passion. She's not only a thought visionary and leader, but an inimitable champion in creating a safe space for women to speak out about their own experiences. So we're just gonna dive straight in. I want to start at the very beginning, before War Magazine. So can you give us a little whistle-stop tour of up to the point of War Magazine? Yeah, so... I was born in the 80s, 1984 baby, seminal year, um, in Wolverhampton. 
I come from a huge Jamaican family. I've got eight aunties, five uncles, and about 100 cousins. Love that. My father's Indian, but I don't know him at all. So i half Jamaican, half Indian, but very culturally Jamaican. Mm -hmm. Right. In Wolverhampton, we had cable from age five, which changed the game for me mm -hmm. because I was really introduced to American culture. I was watching like The Bold and the Beautiful and Dynasty and Oprah and Ricky Lake. And I saw this world that was beyond like BBC Two, which kind of made me really aspire to a lot of things. Mm. I also watched MTV religiously and it was mm -hmm. like my world into fashion and art and culture. So I was very much like a media obsessive from a young age. I went to most wonderful primary school that I have such strong memories of. They let me write school plays that would be performed by I everyone else. They really supported me. I remember like playing football from age five with the boys and you know, nobody said anything. I played football my whole school life. And then one of my teachers, she said to my mom, you should really send her to this new school that's opening up. My mom's like, what? It's like 20 miles away. You know, my mom's a single mom, four mm. children. So she basically, sorted out the application and I did the interview for this school called Thomas Telford and it was a massively innovative school. I feel like you would have loved it. It was 1995, every child had a laptop, you had typing lessons, you had business lessons from age 11. Wow. Everything was electronic, so mm. there was no registration, no detention, no bells. You swiped into all of your lessons. You only had two lessons a day, so you had one for three hours in the morning, one for three hours in the afternoon because they believed in deep work. This is in the 90s. It was incredible. I hated it when I was there. Mm -hmm. Love it in hindsight right. because it built my work ethic and stamina. Mm. So you've got to imagine me being 11 years old, getting dressed by myself in the dark, watching MTV music videos in the morning, leaving my house at 7 o'clock at 11, standing on the street for the school bus, being bussed to the next town, starting school at 8.30, not finishing until 4.30, and then often doing after-school classes as well, mm. which were compulsory. So I had this, like, stamina from aged 11 to 16 that I think has trained me today. No one can outwork me, you mm. know? Yeah. So when I was 16, I really wanted to do creative A-levels, but my school, as you can tell, was so strict. Yeah. They didn't do them. So I went to the local college, and I was absolutely shocked at how relaxed it was mm -hmm. so I was like you're just going to walk up out of lesson that's mad um but most importantly there I did film studies okay. and that changed my life changed everything I had an incredible teacher the first lesson was about uh, linear narrative it, it kind of cemented everything that I'd loved as a child because I was obsessed with mythology yeah and still am and like when I did film studies I just realized that what filmmakers do in 90 minutes, two hours, is like squash human life mm -hmm. <laughs> into this time. And I, it just blew my world open, this film studies class. I also learned a lot about politics from film studies, you know, about minor strikes. So I got 11 GCSEs, film studies, business, English language. And then I knew I wanted to go to Central St. Martin's from age 12. Mm -hmm. Every year from age 12 to 18, I called the university and asked for a prospectus just to check the course was still there and I was reading Vogue and everything from like 12 13 so by the time I got to the course when I did my interview at Central St Martin's when I was like 18 I kind of like knew everything because yes. I've been overstudying for yeah. it which I would actually recommend against now because it didn't even give me space to learn because mm. I was so over prepared 
I got told in the interview that I'd got a place and I graduated with first class degree um, from, from Central Minds Fashion Communication. And I found the whole degree a breeze. Mm. I was like, this is too easy. Like, I need more academia. I worked the whole way through my degree for Kim Jones and Nicola Formichetti, two mm -hmm. incredible people in the fashion industry. I learned everything from them. I learned about referencing, casting. I learned a lot from Nicola, actually, about mm -hmm. management of commercial and creative endeavours right. because he always was financially successful mm -hmm. in his career from a young age and I, I watched that and was in, really inspired by that. I learned how to speak to clients mm -hmm. from like age 19 from yeah. both of them because they're both incredible creative geniuses but they always pleased the client mm. in the best way possible while right. maintaining their uh, creative integrity. So then when I graduated I knew so many people in fashion world. And uh, how did you get that? Was that an internship? I photocopied Nicola's fashion shoots mm. from Days and Confused magazine and I made them into a pop-up book and then I posted the pop-up book to him and said um, whenever like, I'd like to intern for you. I thought everyone's going to send intern letters, yeah. I'm going to make a freaking book. Yeah. So I made this pop-up book which immediately caught his eye. He called me on my grandma's landline. <laughs> he said when you come to London call me when I moved to London when I was 19, I specifically moved four weeks before university's start date mm. to be able to work for him. Right. I interned for him. On the first day I turned up, he was like, are you ready to start now? I remember my boyfriend at the time was outside the bus stop waiting for me. I went, go, go, I'm starting now. Um, so, yeah, I worked for him and immediately he was like, why don't you just work for me full time? But it was really important for me at the time to get a degree. Yeah. I was the first person in my family to, like, get a degree yeah. at the time. Lots of my aunties had degree mm. in adult education. So, yeah, it was really fun and amazing. That month was actually so hard because my student loan hadn't come. You'll remember right. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I come I don't come from a wealthy family. Mm. It was the first time I ever had to get like a student credit mm. card. I was working like two, three jobs throughout uni. It was really tough. But then the day that the loan came and I was like, right, I'm paying my rent for three months done. Mm. Um very, very responsible. Oh, always I would do that. So yeah, I feel that it was important for me to stand out, to show up and basically work really hard and I started while the second year of uni mm -hmm. because I was going out raving. I was living this very high fashion life in mm -hmm. the day. Then at night, I was going to grime raves and hip hop raves. Yeah. And then I made WAH magazine. Amazing. And so where did the original concept for WAH magazine come from? And like, how did you get from concept to actually having, I guess, a product? Before college with MTV, but then with college and the film studies and stuff, I was really learning about forms of communication, film, TV, music, magazines, etc. And in my research on historical subcultures, which I'm ultra fascinated by, zines were like a thing. So a zine, for those young people, <laughs> is basically like a fan magazine. It's mm -hmm. like, it's called, it was called a fanzine. Let's say you've got a fan who's obsessed with you, Grace. They would make a magazine all about you. And because they tend to be independent, it would be photocopied, it would be cut out, you know, it would be hand-drawn and it would be like really, really raw. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I'm going to make a fanzine about women in hip-hop. 
I'm going to call it WA, which stands for We Ain't Hoes. And I'm going to celebrate all of the women in hip hop who aren't basically dancing in naked in videos. They're not mm -hmm. like video girls. Because the time I was making it was very much the era of the video vixen. Right. I was trying to find my own identity at the right. time. So if you imagine I'm 19, 20, I'm going to clubs, not necessarily dressed in tight clothing. But then I could be dressed in tight clothing mm. and that's also fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was just playing with my identity yeah. at the time. So then I wrote it for... Um, I asked a guy, actually, in the computer lab at mm. Central St. Martins, because he knew I was really into tech and computers. He gave me a copy of um, InDesign. he just okay, pretty yeah, much, yeah. like, come out. And I made the magazine by myself for two months. Every day after uni, I would go home, I'd sit on this little computer... I'd write up an interview or scan in photos. You literally had to scan in photos. Yeah. And um, there was no uh, smartphones, so you couldn't, like, put a picture from a phone to a computer back then, which is wild, actually, you know, mm -hmm. they think about it. I'm a big believer in constantly talking about your ideas. Right. I think people get very nervous about competition, and I try, like, really try and think with an abundant mindset all right. the time that anyone could replicate what I do, but it wouldn't be me. It's about the execution. Yeah, yeah. it wouldn't be me. Like, mm. what I did was tell everyone, I'm making a hip-hop magazine for girls. Yeah. <laughs> and then it got travelled around, and then eventually it got to a major sports company that said, we want to sponsor it. Mm. I was like, what? They paid for a professional printing instead of photocopy Incredible. printing, like 10,000 copies. And how far into the project was this? I think I was probably like a month in. Oh, my God. Yeah, but I used to go out all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a student, that's what yeah, you do, yeah, yeah. right? And I'd love going to not just raves, but to exhibition openings and things going on. So my network in London today tends to have come from those first five years of me just hardcore being out and, like, curious about what's going on in the world. So um, they printed these copies, and then the copies came, and then at the last minute, someone in the office said, there's nipples in here, so we can't put it in the stores. So they shipped all 10,000 copies to my house, and... Yeah, that was quite stressful. <laughs> they were everywhere. So imagine, like, living in a shared house... I'm assuming these are... Women's nipples? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of so course. Like women's the nipples. man's nipple is not a problem. <laughs> um, and then what I, I had to get rid of them. So I just took them out on the street and would give them to girls that I thought were wild girls. Mm. So I wouldn't just hand them out willy-nilly. I'd look at a girl and I'd have to make a snap assessment. Like, do we share the same values? Yeah. Do we have the same mindset? Right. So it wasn't like I was like, you're not cool enough to have this magazine. It was more like, do you represent what I believe the future of like mm. women in hip hop or women in the creative industries is? And then I would give it to them. Then I made a blog in 2006 on Blogspot and then it went around the world. Incredible. Yeah, and, and how did that turn into War Nails? Was there a lot of connection? I guess the connection is the kind of the ideology behind it and the concept rather than the yeah, um, business? So a big part of hip-hop culture, being a fly girl, is getting your nails done. Yeah. And I lived in Hackney from the beginning of my London years for 13 years, basically. Yeah. And there's nail salons everywhere in Hackney. And this wasn't part of Wolverhampton culture, so I'd never got my nails done before. 
So I used to always go with my girlfriends on a Friday, we'd get our nails done, and then we'd go out to the parties and stuff. And But I felt like the potential for what could be done on my nails like wasn't delivered right. in Hackney. When I graduated, my biggest client was Nike, and I absolutely loved it. Consulted for them for like a good decade. Mm. What they're incredible at is building a global community mm -hmm. of, you know, they basically invented the term influencer like yeah. way back. And um, they would send me to Asia and to LA and I'd go to New York and all these places and there were all these really cool nail bars. I also always love Japanese culture. So if you go to the Japan Center, you can get these nail magazines. So in 2007, eight, I would be getting these nail magazines from Japan and I'd be trying to replicate them in the local salons in Hackney. And I remember there was a Christian Dior show where there was a double French, so a French tip, yeah. and then a half moon right. in the same colour, which is classic Dior now. And I took it to my local nail salon and they just would not do it. And right. I was like livid. And yeah. I remember like getting out of the salon, jumping into my boyfriend's car and being like, I'm gonna open a nail salon. <laughs> I, I love that. I, I'm like dead. This is at Christmas 2008. And before we get to the actual opening of the nail salon, just when you said Nike were your biggest client, at this point, was it at university that you were doing consultancy for these? Do you know something? Even just reminiscing through this story, it was such a great time in yeah. my life. I had so much fun. I was like feeling all my passions. Right. Because also I forgot to say, I started doing a master's degree at Goldsmiths. Okay. So I applied for the master's in the April. I got my place and I started it in October. But I actually got my first Nike job July, immediately after graduating. I went to Milan for a styling job. So then I was like, it's fine, I can do both. So I would go to Goldsmiths, I'd be, I'd take my suitcase, I'd put it in the cloakroom with these lovely Jamaican women. I'd be like, just watch my suitcase, please, until after class. I'd do my classes, then I'd fly to New York. I did that for a couple of years. It got too much. And I postponed my master's like twice, mm. deferred, mm. is that yeah. the word, before being like, I'm never gonna finish this. Yeah. And actually I regret it so really? much. Yeah, because, I could have had a master's. Yeah. And um, I did all the classes. I just didn't hand the essay in at the end because I didn't do the reading. Mm. And I was just like, I wish I'd done that and pushed mm. myself a bit harder. How did you even start to get those types of styling jobs and those consultancy jobs when you were at university? One of the essays in my book is called Play Games You Can Win. Mm -hmm. And the way I liken it to is imagine you're in a tournament mm -hmm. and there are all these different like games going on and my tournament was fashion right right and in fashion you can have lots of different roles you could be a photographer you could be a writer you could be a publisher um an editor but i love styling and by the way at my degree the one good thing about it is they make you do everything so fashion communication you pretty much do everything apart from making clothes mm -hmm. so i did a bit of photography did a bit of journalism and i loved image making. So I was like, I want to be a stylist. So when I started thinking more and more about being a stylist, I looked at the type of stylists that were out there. And again, this is pre-Instagram, this is 2003 when I started my degree. I knew I loved menswear more than women's wear. You know, I was playing football, I was always a bit of a tomboy. Mm. I love streetwear, skatewear. So I honed in on everything menswear, which is how I found Nicola and Kim Jones, because both of them were doing the most insane menswear. Mm -hmm. Within menswear, there's lots of different menswear. You could be a band stylist, celebrity stylist, you could be doing GQ or high-end stuff. What 
I loved, and again, you know, Nicola and Kim really pioneered, was the mix of streetwear with high-end designer clothes. No one was putting, like, Comme de Garçons and Supreme together before, mm -hmm. like, they were doing it. So then I'm narrowing, narrowing, narrowing down. And what I was obsessed with was youth culture mm -hmm. and casting, like, teenagers and, like, making the shoot look like a real scene. So I worked following my passions and my interests, but really worked on becoming the de facto person for, if you wanted to do sportswear and youth culture, you came to me. Mm -hmm. So I got sports clients like that, yeah. because you, what you want to do, and I, I tell like my audience this all the time, you want to be the definitive, indispensable, go-to person for the thing that you're known for. Mm -hmm. So rather than doing like lots and lots and lots of different things, I'm very good at saying, here are my pillars. Mm -hmm. And my pillars change every three to five years. Mm. Um, but when I was graduating, my pillars were street, sport, youth. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even male or female, to be honest. It was just street, sport, youth. So I would do jobs for Nike, you know, Reebok. I did Levi's, Lee Jeans. I did a lot of like youth culture because they knew that I could deliver on mm -hmm. this one thing that they wanted, mm -hmm. which meant I could put my price up for it. I think that is such an important concept. I think that we, and I think if you look at my career, it will look like key points, but actually there was so much shit I threw at the wall that didn't stick as well. Same. Whereas like now what it, you know, there gets to a point that it comes to where it's like, no, no, if you want this type of person, you will come to me. Exactly. Like there, as in, you know, there are a few other people who I guess like sit within the same space, but like, if you want this, this and mm. this, like I, I will be the one to offer you this. <laughs> like, this is what makes you indispensable. Exactly. And I feel like there's so much talk about niches online, which is really important, but it's like position yourself to your ideal client over and over and over. Like the fact that your ideal client should come on your page and be like, there. Exactly. And if there's anything that you go on your page and it's sort of, whether it's Instagram, whether it's your website, whether it, whatever it might be, if there's anything on your page that kind of takes away from that, just refine it. It's mm. not about like not doing certain things. It's like be your perfect client's perfect person. Yeah. And just like over and over and over, always look at it through that lens. There's a big challenge right now for what you can deliver as a core value or core pillar that cannot be easily... Um, created on an Instagram account or on a page. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I would always be known for as a stylist was I was highly energetic, personable, chill, fun, made everyone feel good. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you capture that? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to be said about just general reputation mm -hmm. also, like deciding how you want to show up in the room, mm -hmm. not just from a visual place but from an energetic place. I could not agree more and I also think that like there is so much to be said for being a easy person to work with and by an easy person to work with I do not mean a pushover and I do not mean someone who will walk in and just be like you know like oh no that doesn't matter if it matters it matters especially mm. like with creative vision just being like no, no no I really do need that actually to be able to do my job because that's important but that's all about being an easy person to work with if you compromise on those things and then your work at the end isn't what it should be that's also not being an easy person to work mm. with but like showing up sticking to deadlines being personable being polite but then also take no shit when you don't need to take shit. And like, I think that's so important. And we like, there's a lot of projection when you want to appear a certain way and actually just being a really good person to work with says so much. Like I would like to think that everyone who I've been on a set with or like whatever will say, yeah, 
easier than I expected. Yeah. Like, would have said this, but actually, you know, um, it was like this, this and this. And I, I don't think that can be said enough. Mm. I'm not always easy to work with, though. Mm. And I think what's important is when I'm on set and I would say I've not been easy to work with, I've been conscious of it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sitting here thinking that I'm doing my best and why isn't everybody just, like, sure. understanding... I would say there's different levels as to why I might have made a decision that this is how mm -hmm. I'm going to show up. So, for example, it might be that I found everything about it thus far unprofessional and therefore I'm just thinking, all right, I'm here and I'm going to do my part, um, but there's bits of me that I'm going to protect because mm -hmm. otherwise it, you know, 100%. I'll be submerged into this mess. Mm. For example, there's times when I've been, if I'm honest, a little bit resentful. Like mm -hmm. I've been on set with all white teams, mm -hmm. which I just look around and it actually upsets me. Mm -hmm. And then I can't give my full authentic self to the job because I'm like, there are no black people on mm -hmm. this team. There's no black women on this team. Why would you, knowing who I am and what I do, not? Yeah. Make a diverse team. And then a little part of my soul, like, shuts mm. down and I'm not fully giving, you know? And then there's other times when I'm just, like, um, have to explain to someone, I'm not well, I'm having a bad day. 100%. You know, this... I'm, but I'm here and I'm going to show up. And the outcome... I'm very obsessed with outcome versus process. I make a decision. Is the process important or is the outcome important? And sometimes I will just have to say, look... The process is not going to be nice. The process will be difficult. It will be challenging. It might be ugly, but the outcome is going to be amazing. Mm -hmm. So you're going to get your good outcome and it might be a bit painful, but yeah. you know, or the process might be important. It might be that I don't care what happens at the end, but it's really important that this team works well together, gels well together, etc. hundred percent. And then maybe it's less about being an easy person to work with and more about just being a good person to work with, because mm -hmm. at the same time, is it not being... At the end of the day, either if the outcome's not good because you took shit or you don't feel good yeah. after the job because of that reason, I think that's so such a good point and it's one of those things where it's like, I'll be a good person to work with, that doesn't mean I'm going to be agreeable the whole yeah. time because to be, I need to be unagreeable to be able to create my best work or to be able to show you that this is the way I work. Mm. I feel like there are times in my life and there are times I see that people around me where there's this lack of understanding of why things have happened the way mm -hmm. that they are. And I'm always, I'm big on truth seeking, like how can I get to the core of why this is so? And I think as long as you have a consciousness and awareness to, you know what, I was mean to that person and it's nothing to do with that person, mm. it's because of X, Y, Z, or that person reminds me of my ex that traumatised me and now I know this, I can go and make amends with that person rather than being like, why is this happening to me? I'm just always on a constant cycle of context, mm -hmm. nuance and self-reflection. Yeah. Like, what is going on here and how is this affecting my emotions? You try and create space between them. So try to not be as reactive. It might be five minutes, it might be ten breaths, which is what I tell my son all the time. Mm. Take ten breaths and then let's decide. It might be an hour. I, it, sometimes it's a year. Mm. I've been away from things that have been painful for me for a year to see if, uh, I've changed my process on them. But I do I do think that throughout my career, there is, you know, you can we can talk about my career being, you know, as this top uh, surface layer, but actually what happened underneath my career mm. on a personal level has been the thing that I'm probably most proud of mm -hmm. because I can do anything. If mm -hmm. I want to do something, I'm going to do it, right? 
But what you can't, or what I rather can't, um, couldn't force, speed up, overachieve, overprepare for, was just going through the life journey of becoming mm -hmm. the person that I want to be. Mm. You almost like can't rush it. Yeah. And that was quite interesting also. Yeah, I think that's so important because we look at the kind of milestones as the career rather than the actual like growth through that, yeah. um, which I think is really important. How did you even get to the point where you had a nail salon? Like in terms of like yeah. getting the space, getting the team? My boyfriend at the time is my son's father mm -hmm. and I got into his car and I said, I'm gonna open my own nail salon. And he was like, okay. <laughs> We just met, by the way, like, two, <laughs> two, we met two weeks before. Right. Right. So I would sit in his car on my phone, reading nail blogs. There was only one, actually, so I don't know why I use the plural. There was no <laughs> nail blogs. There was this incredible trade magazine in the mm. US called Nails. Um, it was like, um, you know, like a uh, corporate magazine. Right. And I would read that magazine on my phone over and over again, and just be like, okay, how do I do it? Then I found this ebook by a woman who I eventually met and made friends with, who mm. now lives in South Africa. It was written in Comic Sans and it was called How to Open Your Own Nail Salon 599 ebook. I bought it, downloaded it. I love that. Yeah. Talk and about I, a niche market. Literally. <laughs> well, you did that, didn't you? Like, <laughs> That's so yeah, true. Yeah. So um, um, she must have sold so, because nothing, I, I mean, I don't think a book still exists on literally yeah. how to open from the business side. Yeah, that's so true. You know actually. what I mean? So um, she was great. She actually owned the previous nail salons in Selfridges and she okay. was amazing. So I downloaded this book and then I kind of just, I'm the type of learner or doer that once I get an idea in my head, I obsessively right. research it. Right. Like, you can't I will listen to like 10 podcasts in a day yep, about media business models <laughs> now sell on whatever mm. it is right um and then I'm kind of absorbing everything everybody's done before I'm thinking what's my point of view on it so then my boyfriend at the time on February or so he's like I've got a surprise for you I was like what is it he's like I found a spot I was like what so 30 seconds from my house, I lived in a warehouse apartment on Kingsland Road in Haggerston. He found me the original salon location. Um, oh, it was so cute. It was like a mess. The, the street was like full of drug addicts and mm. like, like rubbish. Mm. There was no such thing as a flat white. There was no avocado on toast. There right. were no, no, everyone had an iPhone. Mm. It was next door to a chip shop and a kebab shop. And I was like, yeah, this is great. Perfect. <laughs> Spot on. And um, it had no toilet, no kitchen. It, it didn't have a front. It had a wooden front. Like, why would someone take the glass out of the shop? So, um, <laughs> so I was cute. like, but again, it's really funny because I was so naive. Mm. I love youthful naivety. I completely I agree. I love talk it. about this the whole time. I love it. When I see someone who's like in their early 20s and they're like, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. I'm like, yes, you I would are. rather <laughs> every day of the week you be a naive doer because it's like you will learn within seconds, but also you're just, no one's telling you not to yeah, do that thing. Yeah. I completely agree. Like when I look back and people are always like, I literally had an interview yesterday and they were like, what's your biggest thing that you like look back and thought was one of your strengths? And I was like, honestly, naivety. I didn't so naive. know 
with the risks yeah. I was taking. As in, like, it wasn't like, oh, this could end me up in 200 grand's worth of debt. I'd Literally. Be like, and it wasn't even a security <laughs> thing. It was about the fact that, like, no, I'm going to do this I'm and I, do I will make it work. And I understand for me that very much comes from a position of privilege. But it's also, like, the way you make decisions, no matter what it is, whether it was, like, us building an app at Shreddy or so. I was like, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, Let's do it. Do like, it. And then you become, like, as with you, like, I become obsessed with the idea and I will make it work. Yeah. And, like, something will happen. And it's just, like, now everything's so considered, which is important. And, like, mm. there's much more, like, salaries at stake yeah. and mortgages as at stake and all older. of these things. But it's, like, do you know what? Like, I fucking love youthful naivety and just Same. being able to be, like, you make... I just love pe seeing people going around just being, like, yeah, I'm now doing this. I'm going to do I this. I love it. It's so true because I didn't, despite all my years of business studies, which by the way, doesn't prepare you for no. actual business. <laughs> I just threw myself into it really quickly. Actually, how I started it was I was earning quite a lot of money styling. Mm. And because I'd never came from money, I didn't really know what to do with my money. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of like always just had a bit of cash in my right. bank account because you get paid in lump sums. And then my best friend, Megan, she was going traveling around India. She got a job at Topshop and mm. she was like a buyer. She'd got some inheritance from mm -hmm. her grandfather. And she said, look, I'm gonna quit my job. I'm gonna travel around India for a year. I'm gonna give you my inheritance to start this business. And when I get back, I want a job. I was like, ah! fuck off. <laughs> it was like 17 grand and I paid it back. Are you guys still friends? A, yeah, she's god, godmother to Roman. That is the best story I've ever heard. Yeah. She gave it to me. I don't know what, she was probably naive as well. Yeah, she sounds like you know sounds what? the best naivety I've ever you heard. Know what? That 17 grand literally went like that. Yeah. <laughs> went on the deposit. I yeah. didn't realise you had to pay three, six months deposit on a lease. First three to six months of rent, the legal fees for the place. I had to build a toilet, I had to build a kitchen, I had to get licensing, Fuck. I had to build a glass front because yeah. there was no glass, as I said. <laughs> yeah, it just disappeared, like, yeah, can before imagine. we even opened. But it was so much fun because I didn't really know what I was doing, but now if you asked me to open a salon, I could probably get it open in a couple of weeks because yeah. I've done so many, yeah, <laughs> do you yeah, know yeah. what I mean? And um, I wanted the feeling to be like, you're coming into my house. Right. So it was very, very studio vibes. Mm -hmm. It didn't look like any other salon. Every other salon was like white, imported furniture, right. like a bit tacky. Yeah, like you're going into chairs. your mate's house, you're getting ready for a party and Literally. you're doing nails. And that was what it was like for mm. the first few years. People would just come in on the way to going out drinking in Dalston. Yeah. The salon would be I open till like 10, that. 11 o'clock at night. I remember we screened Beyonce's first film. Yeah. I forgot what it was called, but we, we just... I say screened. We put it on the laptop on the desk yeah. of the nail salon, right? <laughs> the premiere. <Yeah. laughs> but um, it was just wonderful. When the tsunami happened in Japan, my friend organised a sale. We raised like four grand. We let women's charities do meetups. I let the local kids from the estate across the road sweep up nails in return mm. for free nails. It was like so community vibes. Mm. And I Can absolutely loved it. <laughs> I think I probably get asked at least a couple times a month. Why don't mm. you bring in Wa back? I would love to do it, but I learnt after about three months that it wasn't really a scalable business for right. me. When I say scalability, it wasn't like as a business this couldn't scale. I did not want to do it. No, is I the know. Key thing. So after six months of Wa being open, 
I didn't want to do it. Mm. And I know you, you serve a fucking obs- huge business. Everyone and you're not going to be obsessed. happy with your income coming Actually, in. <laughs> it wasn't even that. It was not, like, genuinely, it was nothing to do with my ambitions. Mm. It wasn't to do with the money. It was to do with the type of work that suits me. And right. this is something that I constantly tell my team. We make everyone in the company do a presentation on themselves. Mm. What are you motivated by? What type of work is productive to you, etc.? So I know if you're into deep work, writing essays, I'm not going to ask you to do an Instagram Live because right. that's not what you're suited for. And I was 25. Yeah. I didn't know what I was suited for. Mm. I was not happy from six months in, yet everyone was obsessed with it. Yeah. So I couldn't shut it. Mm. I felt like I was beholden to the yeah. like audience. I'll tell you what I didn't like. I don't like managing large amounts of people. Mm-hmm. So I had 25 nail artists and there was no management layer between us. So it was me doing like business stuff and then nail art and that right. was it. I had an amazing fledgling career of styling. I was right. earning thousands of pounds putting clothes on people. Yeah. I was literally living my absolute best life. I was traveling around the world. No, I could never have dreamed as a 12 year old in Wolverhampton that at 23, 24, I was literally like flying to Portland to deliver workshops for Nike. That was yeah. like, I was so happy. Yeah. And then I was trying to do both. Right. As I've mentioned with my masters, it's a common thread. I try and do both before mm-hmm. I have to let go of one. I had to turn down styling jobs because yeah. the salon, the shutter was broken in the morning. It was just yeah. too... and it's... It's, it's too manual. Like, and there's a lack, lack of automation, yeah, in, exactly. in terms of, like, what you can do and therefore, like, oh, you're a creative as well. Like, when you're sitting there being like, I need to deal with someone Payroll. who's... Annoyed. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, this is not for me. It, I just... It just was so overwhelming. But it's also, it's not how you're best spent. Like, you're best spent making, doing, like, the ideas and doing the styling yeah. and, like, all of this. And then when you're sitting there trying to deal with an employee that's not, like, you know, exactly. what, what, any of these things, it's like, this is not my calling. <laughs> it's not... You know what, though? I have sort of made it my... Because it was a big frog that I had to eat, which is management, Mm -hmm. right? Leadership and management being two different things. It's taken me so long. It's taken me 15 years to feel Mm. that I have a confidence in managing. My team right now, I'm realising who I work best with, how to motivate them. Because I've made so many management mistakes, Mm. every one in the book you can imagine. But I just... Why wasn't I happy? I was actually depressed. Mm. When I look back at photos, I look so thin, my skin's terrible, I look like shit. And I also had a baby Mm. at the time, you know, and I was also breaking up with my partner. And I remember seeing this video of um, someone who is in the sea and they're trying to swim to shore and the sea's like crashing like crazy. And then the person just stops and then they just let themselves be taken out by it. And that's how I felt. I remember seeing that little video being like, that's how I feel. Yeah. I feel like I'm floating and everything else is deciding what I should be doing or right. where I should be going. We never said no to a job. Mm-hmm. We pioneered pop-up nail bars. Like, no one was doing that. Mm. We travelled all around the world. I sent girls to, like, Russia, to Japan, like, everywhere to do pop-up nail bars. And we just said yes to it all because it paid the bills and it was a stress. It was fun and pioneering. Yeah, and you made something incredible. Uh, Yeah, it was really cool because girls loved it. And Mm. now, like, the girls who first came to Watt, I have grown up with me. 
which I'm sure they have your, your audience too. They've mm. grown up with you yeah. from your YouTube days to now. And it's yeah. like, it's actually quite sweet to think that you reflect or represent a life experience of another woman mm. who's going on the same path yeah. as you. Yeah. 25 to 33 were probably some of the most traumatic years of my really? life. Really? 100%. And what age did you have? Roman, yeah. 26. My best mate. Mm. I always watch your Instagram stories. I'm literally I'm like, obsessed I love, with it. <laughs> I love how you're just best friends. Yeah, he's really good company. Yeah. Like, sometimes if I'm walking down London by myself, I'm not thinking, oh, I wish I had a man with me. I'm like, I wish Roman was here. <laughs> I wish I I Roman was here. That. That'd be so, it'd be better if Roman was here. Um, yeah, he's really good. He's I chill. He's funny. I love that. So... I feel like when you start up a business, it's really easy to overlook things like the tech you need to have it like in place. So for example, you're having a, a nail shop, a nail salon. The first thing you think about isn't necessarily tech. However, we obviously know that tech can increase like the productivity. It can increase like how you're processing your business, all of these things. How did you know what platforms you needed, if any? Tech has been a thread through my entire life from a small girl thinking about how does my cable box work, mm. you know? How am I getting MTV? When I went to that techie school, as I said, we all used laptops, mm. it, you know? I remember I had a pager. Um, I love tech as a vehicle for creativity mm -hmm. and as a vehicle for connection. Those are my two main things. So with the salon, we knew really early on that we needed to get a booking system. Mm -hmm. The problem was, is that I was using really cool platforms like Tumblr and I remember Uber was just like coming through and, and then I was looking at these booking systems and they were not nice mm -hmm. at all and I felt like the user experience of that kind of entrepreneurial software did not match a consumer mm. uh, experience so actually tech was something that parlayed like the lack of high quality tech in the salon industry is how I then came up on Beauty Stack. Right. We pioneered loads of stuff in that salon, little mm. user behaviours, but one of the biggest ones was that if you imagine a website for a nail salon in 2008, if they even had a website at all, by the way, because that would have been rare, it normally would have just been a listing, um, they would have a static menu of designs that typically look like stock imagery. Mm -hmm. uh, what I did was I, need, I knew I needed a website for the salon, mm. but I was like, but I need to be able to update that website mm. all the time. So I was like, I'm just going to make it a blog. So we used Tumblr as our main salon website. And every single day we uploaded anything from five to 50 pictures of the nails we'd done that day. So instead of having static menus, we had constantly organic mm. evolving menus. Yeah. Again, unheard of. Instagram launched a year later. I moved from Tumblr to Instagram, mm. which is how we grew our following so early because we were like probably the first nail salon on Instagram. Mm. As we grew on Instagram, people were screenshotting pictures of the nails and emailing them to us. How much is this? How long does it take? Who did it? What is it? Is that acrylic? Is that gel? Mm. What is shellac? And I would be like, so much of my time, going back to the things that I hated about that place, were answering emails mm. about what is nails. Mm. Second time spent was doing the rotor, yeah. also a tech issue. <laughs> um, so I remember sitting there being like, okay, I'm going to start tagging these nails. And what I was trying to do was build a very early data labeling system mm. on Tumblr. So if you came in and you said, 
I want something pink, um, girly, graphic, uh, nature inspired. It would all be tagged. Mm. Um, but that was also super manual, super long. Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to build software. Yeah. I'm going to build software. Never done it before. Just like the usual people, everyone just, I'll just build software. I'm just going to build software that says you click a picture and you book it. Mm. I feel like one of the biggest things that happens is that you know tech is going to help your business and you know that getting the right things in there is going to completely change the way you work. It's going to change like your productivity. It's going to change your systems. It's going to change your payment processing, your accounting, like every single area of it. But like there is so little information on there about what tech you should use. I think it's something like 26% of small and medium businesses just have no idea where to start or like don't have the capabilities to support a kind of modernization. So I feel like, especially now with things on social media, we're doing all of these areas of the business. I remember doing things on my notes. Like there should be no reason to be doing things on your notes. It should really just be about like getting the right tech in place. And that's why I feel like things like with the Dell advisor system, like they have one-to-one advisors. So that means that you can talk to someone and actually find out what tech do I need to be running this business? Whether that is something that's kind of like supporting your employees, whether that's actually just supporting your backend data, those things will take hours off your time. And I feel like it's something we overlook because it seems like a boring thing for big businesses to be doing, like people who work in corporate, whereas actually there's a reason why those things are in place. They make such a difference to your business running well. And I feel like just having things like advisors makes all the difference. I think it's really important to seek advice on what tech platforms to mm-hmm. use, but also as well to trust in early products. Mm-hmm. So I've always been an early adopter of everything, mm-hmm. right? Like again, early on Instagram, early yeah. on Tumblr. But when I've been early with a software product for my business, it's been so wonderful to be part of someone else's entrepreneurial journey mm-hmm. too. So like I was early user on Figma and Timely and all of these really cool platforms that service businesses, like on a B2B side, Charlie HR, all mm. of the platforms we use for our business, I've used them when they pretty much had just mm-hmm. launched. And it's it's really cool to be an early customer and to co-create with that yeah. as well. So, you, you know, you can contact the founder and say, hey, our business actually needs this one feature. Do you, you know, I'd love to talk to you mm. more about it. And what you're effectively doing is building like a tech ecosystem around mm-hmm. your business that helps support you yeah. in your work. And you'd be so surprised at how many things actually improve the work you're doing rather mm. than like, I think we think of tech as like the boring part, whereas like when you get some automation in there and when you get some help, it kind of changes everything. And I want to talk about the move from WAR to Beauty Stack. How did you know that it was the right... I mean, I know you've talked about now, so within the first six months, you realise like this is probably not what I'm going to be doing as much as I love the concept. How did you know it was the right time to stop and not just like sell it, for example, and actually move on with your career and your life? So... I spoke to a lot of people about selling it, Mm -hmm. but I didn't think that they would steward it in the right way. And I was still so young and I thought, you know what, this is my first business. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do many more. Mm -hmm. I'd better just kill it. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm actually, I never regret that decision Mm -hmm. at all because... I've not seen a single salon like what? No. That's the fact of it. If one existed, I'd be so happy because yeah. I'd be getting my nails done there. I actually get my nails done with all the wild girls mm. in their own spaces. But there isn't anything like it. And I feel that the people that were able to buy weren't like me. Yeah. They were mainly men. Yeah. 
And I just knew they were going to extract value from mm -hmm. it and it wasn't going to be great. I also did a product line and I didn't really like making products either. Mm -hmm. I'm an experienced person and I'm a software person, not a product person. And I just, re I didn't enjoy that either. Yeah. I should have probably built that and sold it because that mm -hmm. would have been easy to do because it's difficult to get products wrong in terms of beauty. It's all mm -hmm. the same, you know, thing. You know, I was very inspired by Colette in Paris. Mm -hmm. Colette in Paris had recently closed on their 10th anniversary. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I was like, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. I'm gonna and we closed on our 10th anniversary. I love that. And I also feel like when you look at your career, there's a reason you're known as such a great entrepreneur. And I say that not just to, you know, be all the way up your ass, um, <laughs> but to be like, in terms of you know, and you're so fine with just being like, actually, this, this is great. We now move to this. And I feel like there's so much narrative out there that's kind of like you do your business and it's either a failure or it's a success and yeah. it's like while was such a great success and then you decided actually this is this is not what I want to be doing and that's kind of the road you took and I think there's so much to learn from that that actually we usually box it into like either of those two things it was absolutely a success that doesn't mean it needs to be sold that doesn't yeah. mean you need to continue doing it and I think having that control and being like this is who you are as an entrepreneur as you said this is my first business I'm going to build loads more I just think it's a powerful mindset you know what my proudest proudest achievement from WAR was all of the women it inspired to do their own businesses because I know for fact we've created an army of entrepreneurs mm. who basically saw that a little black girl from Wolverhampton could have a shop so why can't I like no one had a shop at that point like other women didn't have a shop it was it's so strange to think of how the landscape has changed so rapidly but when i look at the influence or the impact of what it's not about the finances it's about the fact that people knew it was possible and knew that a woman could grow something and a mm. woman of color actually the growth is probably the thing that is my challenge to climb because what i know from my career and my personality is that I like the founding part. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily like the scaling part. So I'm very good at taking things from zero to 10. I haven't successfully taken anything from 10 to 100. Mm -hmm. I've not actually scaled anything. Mm -hmm. I've not, I've scaled a mission or a purpose. Like I would say I've scaled ambition, mm -hmm. you know? I I've scaled this mentality of you can do whatever you want or be whoever you want to be, but I've not scaled something globally. So. It's a personal challenge for me with the stack now to be like, the function of this business is to be a global business, whereas mm -hmm. the function for WAR was to be a creative and inspirational mm -hmm. business. The function for Beauty Stack was to empower other beauty professionals. And mm. the pandemic put a you know halt to that business. I could have just ditched it and moved to the countryside and raised chickens, but mm -hmm. I was like, actually, I think there's another opportunity here. And now, even in the year and a half that we've had the Stack World, there's now an even bigger opportunity. Mm -hmm. When I look at my career, for 15 years I've built communities. Mm -hmm. I always thought community building was the marketing purpose for the product. Right. But actually, community is my product. Mm -hmm. I've always brought people together, physically or digitally, and they have connected, and then they've gone off and done their own thing. I was just joking that I get so annoyed when people I've introduced to like on Instagram hanging out because I'm like, I miss you all. <laughs> now I've, you're friends without me. Um, but you know, what we're doing now is we're building communities for workplaces yeah. because fundamentally my mission 
in life is gender equity through community. Mm -hmm. And I can keep doing that through D2C and through, you know, increasing memberships and doing events and doing more communities. But actually, I can achieve my mission globally, at scale, at a faster pace, if I'm building communities in workplaces for some of the biggest organizations yeah. in the world, which we've started doing. And that has been not only lucrative, like doubling our revenue in mm. like the last six months, but effectively we're changing their lives. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, if you've joined a large corporate company in the last few years, you've got a very different workplace experience to someone who joined pre-pandemic. Mm. You're hybrid working, you don't know anybody, and you're kind of a bit of a loose, yeah. lost fish right so we're like going back to the tech point businesses have a desire to maintain a company culture that is inclusive educational like helps is promotional to women helps women get more leadership roles etc but there's no software that they're using for right. that they expect HR managers to put on women's events yeah I'm sure you've done panel talks at large mm. corporations where yeah. You know, the, it's not that person's job. And mm -hmm. what we're saying is you can build communities in companies through software. Mm -hmm. And we're excited to be selling the stack world at work to businesses mm -hmm. because, you know, it's kind of nice to actually end up here yeah. after everything. Yeah. After this whole thing that I've just told you, I'm like, I've always been around groups of people, bringing them energy, bringing them information, bringing them network, mm. connecting them together. So why don't I just make that my business and see where it goes? Yeah, I mean, talking about network, I feel like we just know how important it is. I mean, it's what you're amazing at doing. But also I feel like in terms of being a founder and a female founder in particular, creating your own network is so difficult. And it's also something that you just like have no idea when to start or how to start. Like if you're on social media, for example, and you're starting your business and you're kind of running it, we can learn so much from networks. Like as you've mentioned, people are born with these networks or get these networks from school where it's like they know who to go to or they know other people in their situation. I feel like in entrepreneurship, particularly as like an underfunded, you know, section, which would be like women and especially with black women, like it is so difficult then to create this network. Well, Dell actually have like a women's entrepreneur network for female founders. And I just think with things like that, when it's able to bring women entrepreneurs together from like around the world, like not even just in the UK and help them connect, like scale businesses and succeed. It's one of those things that ultimately will help to actually overturn the system when it comes to female founders and when it comes to the support we need because you can connect with other people like learn their issues learn you know what you've talked about in terms of scaling and talking to other people who've gone through what you've been through or the challenges you're going through is the most valuable way of moving forward with your business I always find every time I talk to another female entrepreneur I always come out of that conversation like, oh, this would have been so much simpler if I just met you and talked to you. And it's not even about like mentorship. It's usually people who are kind of peer to peer, like in the similar situation to you. So I feel like things like the Dwen, which is the Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network are so valuable. I feel like having these things in place that are for specific areas of your network, like for example, like women entrepreneurs, the importance cannot be overstated. I feel like the fact that it also has entrepreneurs from like startups to scale ups and just gives you access to those entrepreneurs from around the world and also valuable resources to grow your business. I mean, whether that's like latest technology, funding resources, best practices, 
you cannot learn that from textbooks. And I feel like that's one of the most terrifying things about entrepreneurship is that it is so difficult to learn without knowing people. And you can't know people without knowing people. So things like Dwen that like put those networks in place for you literally to be able to go to and have similar people going through similar things or ahead of you in your journey or even kind of earlier in your journey that you're able to impart that wisdom, I just think is so important in being able to turn over the narrative with female founders and actually lend that help to people to be able to create change within the industry. And I just want to quickly touch on funding. So according to Business Insider, Mm. you are one of just 10 black female entrepreneurs in the UK in the past decade who have raised VC. What in the flying fuck is that about? I mean, I think we all know what it's about. Yeah, I mean... I got over the first hurdle. I raised VC money. I probably raised one of the top rounds for Mm. black women. The second hurdle, if you manage to get over that one, is how you spend that money. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I realized during my process as a VC-backed startup is that you can give two people one million and they're going to deploy that capital in a completely different way based on their experience based on their personal barriers, uh, what you know, what's holding you back, and based on their network. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, in the first part of Beauty Stack, engineers don't want to work for black women. Mm-hmm. They don't want to work for women. There was this whole thing about the few engineers not really understanding that I was their boss. You know what I mean? So then you have to pay extra money. So you're de- you basically spend more money mm to achieve the same results than someone who's got a network who knows an amazing salesperson from Mm. their MBA. Mm. Or, you know, there's so many... There's so many Eaton boys Mm. in tech, right? So they're able to call on their Eaton boy mates, oh, come and do this job. And in two months, they're going to get more sales than the woman who's never been in that network because they're also selling to their friends. Yeah. If you're one of the few people that managed to, women that managed to overcome the hurdle of venture capital, you really have to think about how you're deploying that capital. And I think investors should be way more supportive mm-hmm. of like, I got given that money and then left to my devices. And I was like, I don't really know about paid marketing. Mm. I just, didn't know how to spend the money. And it's one of those things that to correct the pattern, it's not about just putting more money in one direction. No. It's about putting it productively in a direction that you can constructively help people to be able to deploy that. Because like, I mean, we've talked about this before, the WeWork founder raised mm. how much like yeah, last yeah, yeah. month? Like, and and we can't, you know, female founders, especially black women, like cannot raise money. As yeah. in, I don't mean that in terms of like an aptitude, yeah. I mean that in terms of the landscape. And it's like, but you're throwing money in this direction because you know it works and why does it work because it's all built on unfair systems and it's all built built on a certain network and direction. It's built on networks and the network and the community, this is why I say my mission is gender equity through community Mm. because I think if you know someone who's the lawyer, who's the salesperson, if you know someone who's at a high position somewhere so that you can get that deal made, that's how you actually raise your economic independence, your mental autonomy, everything. I'm just like, the, the capital is just one part of the problem Mm -hmm. how you help that person build their network around that capital to make that capital as effective as possible is the second part and Mm -hmm. I feel like that's the next 
challenge. And that's where people like you who are able to create great communities and networks can be able to actually say like, no, fuck that. This is a ready built system that yeah. you know through your parents or through your school connections or whatever. Mm. We're going to make that community so that for each penny deployed, we can like match what you're doing. You do that obviously incredibly effectively. And it's almost like, I think that we often want to fix problems by just being able to tick a box of being like, this is how many diverse investments we've made, <laughs> all of this. And it's like, okay, well, uh, yeah. how, if the system's like this, yeah. how do we make it like this by actually being able to put systems in place so that you're not just throwing money at it to tick a box because of course you can get rid of that money yeah. like of course you can deploy you're, that money no, you're, you need you're to meant to you're meant to get it's, rid of yeah, the money it's like, your job to deploy the yeah money. so I, I feel yeah you're completely right i now when i raise again i will be looking exclusively for people who can introduce me to enterprise companies right that's it i'm like you, anyone can write me a check, mm -hmm. whoopie-doo, I'm good at pitching, I'll pitch, it'll be fine. Yeah. I will raise money again, that's mm -hmm. the fact of it. But can you introduce me to three people at Fortune 500 companies mm -hmm. who are basically going to buy my software? Mm -hmm. That's what I care about now. Mm -hmm. And I'm a lot more strategic about it than I was in the early days. But I've got to say, we're talking about all of this, but until you've lived it and learnt it, like, you are going to make mistakes in the journey. And I think a lot of the difficulty and the loneliness of an entrepreneur is the shame you feel because you're like, how could I be so stupid to make this mistake, whatever that mistake might be? Everyone else is doing so well because you only see their highlight reel. Mm -hmm. I'm not good enough to do this. Why am I even bothering starting a business? I'm not meant to be here. And people will have this loop in their head of these things. And it all's born from shame. And the reason you have the shame is through lack of sharing the knowledge that this is completely normal. When you hear that this is completely normal, that that your nervous system <laughs> relaxes. I remember um, when in the middle of the pandemic, I'm part of a CEO group. We meet, you know, it's me and five guys. We meet every month. We have done for several years. They're mm. really successful founders. And when I was thinking it's gonna be so hard to raise, every one of them told me a story about how their rounds had fallen apart at mm. one point or yeah. another. And I was like, oh, yeah, this, you that happened mm -hmm. to you okay well maybe i'm not an idiot then sharing knowledge is what gives people power it means that in your if you're in an office and someone does something untoward talks over you in a meeting harasses you and you talk about it you can be like, oh yeah this happened to me yeah. too let's let's get together and share that knowledge and build a case against it. It takes away the power from the system mm. that's against you. No, I think that's so powerful and I think that's a very good place to end. I will just say I've never talked to a business owner, CEO, entrepreneur who has not talked about in that week specifically how much of a shit show their business is. And <laughs> yeah. I think we look from the outside and we're like, oh, but that one. And sometimes you look at these big companies and you think you know that everyone's doing well mm -hmm. and they are just as disorganized as you are, babe. Yeah. They just don't sweat it. This journey is so hard. You just have to enjoy yourself. You have mm. to make friendships. You have to build community. And you have to just laugh at it sometimes because mm. otherwise you'll cry and yeah. you will cry. And what a good place to end. Don't cry, guys. Or just cry. And, cry. and get up and do it again tomorrow. Yeah. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you, Grace. 
I just want to say thank you so much to Dell Technologies and Microsoft for making this episode possible. I really enjoyed chatting to Sharmadine, not just about her story, but also how tech has played a role in that. I know she always champions the use of tech in business and how much it can help you, even if it sounds super boring. Dell is a trusted advisor for small businesses. They offer dedicated technology and solutions so you can find the right technology and advice to help your business grow and ultimately succeed. Check out Podference. It's got loads of amazing resources that you can listen to and find out about that can help you and your business and also just hear other people's stories and hear how you can optimize your business and your productivity by using tech. Let Dell Technologies help safeguard your business with modern devices and Windows 11 Pro so you can do more and we can all go forward together. Search Dell Podference or visit dell.co.uk forward slash podference to find out more. (laughs) 